Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, I'm super excited to share the good news that I have written another book, How to Pay Your Mortgage Off in 10 Years, responds to the cost of living crisis that many people find themselves in. Whether you are paying off a mortgage, you've paid off a mortgage, you aspire to buy a house and have a mortgage, or you know someone who does have a mortgage, this book will have lots of frugal tips and tricks as well as some finance hacks for you. I would really love your help to pre-order the book. Pre-ordering is so important for authors because it lets us know that this book is going to be fabulous. Thank you so much. Yuma Frugalisters and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. But this guest is someone that I have worked with for at least 15 years or should I say I have been a client of for at least 15 years and here's someone who helps me with my goal of growing my net wealth. But first I have a favor to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing with a friend. And even better, please follow the Joyful Frugalista podcast. Recently, I was fortunate to have Steve McKnight as a guest. And while we were chatting, I mentioned my tax accountant and some of the advice that he had given me. And Steve quipped, well, he must be pretty good. And I said, yes, he was. And believe it or not, Sandra from his office was listening to that podcast. So I thought I had better have my tax accountant on him. So it's my great pleasure today to invite on Scott Ellis. Scott is a Canberra-based accountant who has been practicing for at least 24 years. And as I mentioned before, I have been a client with him for at least 15 years of those years. And I'm not quite sure exactly when I started, but it was definitely before my kids were born. And I trust Scott with my tax and I also value his advice. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Serena. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, and thank you for so many years of good tax and financial advice. That's all right. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) You certainly are. So it's often been said that the only things in life that are certain are death and taxes. So for you, taxes, why did you get into taxes? Obviously, being part of a family practice helped. So going straight into commerce at uni was always the path I was going to take. But that didn't mean I was going to be an accountant. Really, the first two years of uni are pretty boring and have nothing to do with what you do when you get into the real world. But once you hit that third year and you start looking at tax and company law and all that sort of stuff, it gets very interesting. So I liked that. To some. (laughs) Yes. Well, no, it is. It is. It's interesting. And then once you get a grasp of that and you sort of like, like that sort of work, once you start work, you realize that. That's your back end. Knowing that sort of information is just so you can do your job. And then it's speaking with people, being able to explain things to people, having a good client base that trusts you and you talk with all the time. So it's a lot of face-to-face meetings. It's a lot of understanding people, their families, understanding their businesses and that sort of stuff. And that's what I really enjoy. And you do that so well. You're always, Mm. every time I come and see you, once a a year (laughs) usually, um, usually not more than that, But I always get some really great tip. Well, I'm glad. At least I'm doing my job. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly are. So how important is good tax advice to creating abundance? Like often we think it's just, you know, that killer investment or the new job or the promotion. But how important is getting the tax right? 
Well, the tax is part of the framework of everything that you're going to be doing to sort of like build your wealth. But early on, you realize that people who earn higher incomes does not correlate into higher savings. So you see that? Oh, all the time. Because so, we can see what people earn on their investments. We can see what investments people have. And obviously, it's clear what their salary is or what other income they've got. So you can see that a lot of people, now I don't see a lot of their personal spending, but you can see their large, their income, whether it's large or small, and then you can see what they save. And there is no correlation because it is difficult to make that conscious decision to sacrifice now to have a benefit later. And Mm. some people are excellent at it. Other people need to have their arm twisted to do it. And we help that because there's certain things that people do that are tax advantaged or things like that. And they will usually come to us first. Now, we can't provide financial advice or anything like that. But usually we're saying, yeah, you should speak to someone. Yes, you should do it. Yes, you should be putting money into superannuation. And these are the reasons why. But yeah, so that's that we're part of the, a team, I guess, that helps with people improving their future. Mm, and I certainly realised from working with you that you see things in different ways. You see things that I'm like, oh, doll, I really should have known that. Like, why didn't I know that? It's that being, seeing it every day and seeing so many different clients who do so many different things, you do see the same questions or hear the same questions a lot. So you tend to know the answer before they ask the question. Because a lot of things, they're not difficult, but as you said, it's the answers in front of your face, but you don't see it. So how important is it to be organized with your money? I read somewhere, and unfortunately I can't remember where, that the wealthy people are generally very organized when it comes to their money. Is this true for a lot of your clients who are good with money? Uh, Yes, and it's more that, so I'm the link between the client and the Australian Taxation Office. So it's, I do what I can with the information people give me. And the number one problem that we have is that the person doesn't have the information. So we can't manufacture anything. You can't make stuff up. And the tax office does audit and the tax office does check people and they expect you to have records. And unless someone early on has been shown the importance of keeping these records, then they won't maintain them or their record keeping is poor. Well, then you lose that, the ability to claim this sort of stuff. And there's that famous quote from Kerry Packer, where you pay the tax you should, but don't tip them. And essentially, (laughs) every time you don't keep a receipt, you're tipping the Australian government. And most people don't want to tip them. So keep the records you've got. Now, In the last few years, the way that you can keep your records has become so much easier. There is an ATO app and it's free. And if you're just on salary and wages, you can record all of your work-related expenses, all of your donations, and it'll upload into eTax if that's the way you want to do your tax. I had no idea of that. So if you... Someone at work is fundraising and you put in $10 for something and it's, it's got the deductible. Uh, yep, you just put it into the app that you've donated $10 to whatever charity it was. Now, you still us you maintain the receipt, but it's just 
putting all the records in one spot. And at the end of the year, if you're happy with that information, it will link and go straight up to your eTax. Or if you're coming to see accountant, people just open up the app and it's got a summary of everything there. Then if it's unsure, then I'll make a decision. Yes, you can or can't claim that. But at least they've got the information at the end of the year. It's the even a folder that you've got sitting in your email inbox. And every time you buy something that could be for work or you do a donation, just copy and paste it. I have a tax folder, a tax yes. subfolder. You have more ins and outs than most people, but that it's the concept of just having the records there because you're only doing your tax every 12 months. And a lot of people like yourself only see their accountant every 12 months. Now, remembering what you've done a month ago, let alone 12 months ago, gets difficult so people forget and it could be even if like even if you just think it's a hundred dollar donation well you're donating a lot to the government by not claiming it <laughs> pretty much <laughs> and I just I don't know if it's just me but I feel like I've got COVID brain the last couple of years there's just things that I forget and, and when even if people are in business we tell them you should be reviewing your records on a monthly basis because when you go back over them you don't have to go back that far oh, what was that that I spent just then? Well, there's a better chance that you're going to know what it was for if you look at it more frequently. I totally agree. I totally agree that even looking at credit card statements, if I've looked at it in the last month, I remember. If I go back further than that, I often do forget. And I was like, it's that thing like Seinfeld often says that when you go, or once said that when you go to a restaurant and you're ordering all the entrees, it's like, it's all very exciting. And then when the bill comes, it's like, who ordered this? <laughs> who did that? Yeah. And it's that being aware of where your money is going is when you're talking about what do people that are organized have as their trade, it's not being scared to look at where your money goes. And when people do a budget and we've had people go, I ask, Can, oh, could you help me with a budget? And it's not really our thing. Now, there are people who will help with the budget the number one thing people do is they will do a budget and it's completely unobtainable. Oh, I never eat out. So I put zero for that. Zero. And you go, oh, no, I'm going to turn off the lights at seven o'clock at night and we're going to sit in the dark and not do anything. And our electricity bills are going to be really, really low. Well, that's great, but it's just never, ever going to happen. So when you do a budget, it has to be realistic. And then if someone manages to beat the budget, well, then the chance that they're going to try and do that the next month is really, really high. Well, if they have a budget and in the first month they're out by five grand, well, the next month they're just going to completely abandon it. So it's that having the records and being comfortable enough to look at your spending and just don't put your head in the sand. Yeah, confronting the financial truth. <laughs> yes. And for some people, it's where their money goes, whether that is in school fees, whether it is in entertainment, whether it is in motor vehicle expenses, people sort of know in the back of their head where the money's going, but they don't want to put a figure on it because then that might make them uncomfortable that that's where their money is going. And you can't change or manage it if you don't actually look at it. Mm. I remember years ago, I'm going to embarrass a family member, but I don't think she uh, listens to the podcast anyway, so it, it, it's okay. But a family member was given a fair amount of money from her 18th, I think, that was going to be towards a car, but she went out every Friday with her friends. 
And I remember her parent getting very angry at her and saying that she'd drunk away all her money. And she was in a bit of denial, but basically that's what she did. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of teenagers who do that. So it's it's just a normal rite of passage. But she didn't see that she was spending that. No. And even when they're early 20s or late 20s, you get your first real job. And a lot of that earnings just goes out each week. Well, that's fine. But it doesn't take, there's people who don't put all of their earnings over the bar, for example, but save even a little bit, well, over three or four years, that little bit comes a lot. It does. It all adds up. And yep. you see that. So, Well, you could, t- you could see because we see what interest people earn on the bank. So in the last couple of years, that's been next to nothing. But you do see, you can tell the people. We know if people have read investment books because when you get to their bank accounts, they'll have various bank accounts with various names. And you can see they're trying to put money away for bills, money away for a holiday, money away for that. So those people do come, you can tell. And is it working for them, these types of methods? Uh, not everybody. So it's you're still, setting it all up doesn't mean that you're going to carry on with it, but at least give it a try. <laughs> it's like set it up, see if you're going to try, and not the same method works for everybody either. Yeah, well, some of those methods don't work for me for various reasons. Yeah. But I appreciate that they do work for a lot of people. Yeah, and you just find something that you're comfortable with. Some people just need to have that little bit of money put in a savings account straight out of their pay, and that savings account doesn't have an FBOS card. They've got to go into the bank to get it to make it that little bit difficult because if they could transfer it, they transfer it. Oh, I love that because it is amazing that the more money you have, the more money you spend. Oh, yeah. Yes, we all get comfortable with it. Mm. There is research that shows that if you were paying, let's say it was $3,000 a month on your mortgage and you have that great day where you pay off your mortgage, the pop, the champagne, and you go, right, well, I'm going to get that $3,000 and it's going to go into super, but I've got a few things to do around the house. So in six, eight months time, we'll do that. In six, eight months time, it'll be less than two and a half. It could be two, two that they can put into savings because the rest of it has now become normal monthly spending. Well, if they went from one month direct to the next, they wouldn't notice theirs. It'd just be 3000 into the mortgage, $3,000 into savings. But if you take that gap, it automatically, oh, I've got the money and people just start spending it. Yeah, suddenly you can go out. Yeah, do can... this. And no, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have a lifestyle. I'm just saying this is what happens in general. Mm, fascinating. So what are some of the things that you can claim tax for that many people don't know about? Now, you gave me this question as a heads up, and I'm going to answer it completely differently. So the thing that you need to understand is that Australia has a progressive tax system. Now, what that means in essence is that as your income goes up, you pay a higher tax rate on that next dollar. But for everybody on the first $20,000, give or take, you earn, you're not paying any tax at all. And between the 20 and the 45, you're only paying 19 cents in the dollar. Now there's Medicare levy and there's other taxes that can go on on top of this. And then we go from 45 to 120, 120 to 180, and then 180 plus. Now there's been a proposal that has gone through and we'll see if it all finalizes that from 1 July 2024 between 18,000 and 45 will remain the same but then 45 
and 200,000 will be essentially 30 cents in the dollar. Now, when we have people come in and they go, oh, look, I've spent $1,000 for tools for my job, for example, I'm going to get $1,000 back. But that's not (laughs) the way it works. So if you're an apprentice and you've earned $20,000, well, you're not going to pay any tax anyway. doesn't matter how many deductions you've got, then the tax office isn't going to give you any money. If you're earning between 20 and 45 and you spend that $1,000, well, you're getting $190 back. Now, $190 isn't an insignificant amount of money, but it's still a very small percentage of your outlay. So clients will ring up and go, oh, look, 30 June's coming up. Uh, I'm going to go out and spend some money because I don't want to pay tax. And you go, well, look, if your income is theoretically in the top tax bracket, which could be 180 or going forward 200, great. At best, you're getting 50 cents in the dollar back. Well, for the average person, it's less than a third. This, oh, I've got to get a tax deduction is the wrong way to think about it. If you want to buy something and it's tax deductible, well, you're getting a discount, but whichever way you cut it, you are still out of pocket. Now, Australia is unusual in that we have a lot of government benefits and a lot of family benefits, etc., which when you couple that with your income tax, there can be a fairly big benefit for reducing your income, but that's a very small percentage of the client base that everyone's around. And they're not a lot of those people would be looking to do the deduction because to be getting that sort of benefit, your income's not great in the first place. But it's that where people say, oh, what's the deduction we're missing? What should we claim? It's going, well, look, if you think your expense is work-related, then it's worth checking that it is tax deductible. Now, Australian tax system says, well, if you do something to do your work, then you start with the assumption that it's tax deductible. But then there's things that are added into the myriad of pages of tax law that says, no, because of ABCD, you can't claim it, like driving to and from work, because you're just going to and from work, that's never going to be tax deductible. But if you spend your day driving around in your car all day for work, well, then that is tax deductible. That's fine. Now, those people who have cars that are tax deductible might want a nicer car than they normally would or put nicer things in their car. Well, if their car is a tool they use, well, then that's great. You've bought something that is tax deductible. You're going to get a benefit or you need it for work. Claim it. That's great. But don't go hunting for something to claim just because you're going to get a tax deduction. You're still out of pocket. Why spend a dollar to save 50 cents? That's great advice because the amount of people who do that, like negatively gearing and property is a prime example. Yeah. And look, negative gearing is different in that what you're trying to do is have a loss on a property now and hope that the capital growth of the property during that time is greater than the loss you've got now. So you get a tax deduction now. And when you sell it later on, you'll pay capital gains tax, but you hope to have much lower income and capital gains tax works that you pay tax on only half of whatever you make. Well, you'll end up paying less tax in the long run. So you get savings now, but you're going to reap the benefit later. Now, over the previous few years, if your property was negatively geared, it most probably wasn't a great property. 
because interest rates were at historic lows, rents were historically high. So if your property couldn't make money in those sorts of circumstances, I hope you're making some really good capital growth because it's never going to make a profit any other time. But that's not saying like property is just part of it. But like my wife thought that an investment property would be a great idea. And then when she came in and was helping me with some of the stuff in the office here and noticed how much people can lose with their property and how many people don't make money with their investment property. It's not buy an investment property and you're going to make money. Yeah, you're right. It's not set and forget automatic. No. You've like, still got to yes, negotiate. Yes, they might go over 10 years. You, they go, people argue that property doubles. Well, that's not in every suburb. And what did you spend in interest, repairs, rates, land tax, insurance over the 10 years? Sometimes the property doubling in money actually just gets you your money back. So should you have put it somewhere else? That's fine. And I'm not saying that property is bad. I'm just saying that it is not, there is still decisions to be made. You still got to choose a good property. You still got to understand what you're going in for and all those sorts of things. So it's not a panacea. That's all. It's not just, oh, buy, set and forget. Like there are good properties that you can do that, but know what you're getting in for. I think that's great advice and because uh, so many people, particularly on a rising boom market, they all want to be in, they all want to have investment yeah, properties. Yeah, fear of missing out. Fear Again, of missing out. So much fear of missing out these days and that's another one. But you've got to negotiate everything. You've got to negotiate price. You've got to negotiate. And research. Research. People will spend less time researching their investment property than they most probably do on a pair of jeans. They'll shop around online for a couple of weeks while they'll see a property that looks like a good deal and go and spend a fortune on it while they haven't done, like for that amount of money, you should be doing months of research. You should be keeping records of what the average price is in the area you want to buy. You should be ringing other agents to check that the rent that you'll get. No, like, is there any future repairs, maintenance that's going to come up? There's a lot. People will buy units and townhouses and look at the body corporate and go, oh, that looks like it's completely reasonable. But if they went and looked at the notes from the body corporate meeting, the body corporate for the next financial years doubled. And that means that the figures are no longer great. But no one went to check those records to see what is happening. It's just same as everything. It's boring and it's mundane, but you just got to do your research. Research, research, research. Yeah. And if you're not going to do it, are you paying someone to do it? And do you trust the research that they're doing? <laughs> so speaking of research, how many people are researching some of the sorts of deductible, some of the expenses that they can claim, such as things from working from home? Yeah. Now, because of the prevalence of it over the last few years, there was a couple of years there where the ATO went on a simplified method. As long as you had records, and I know I keep coming back for it, but if you had records at how many hours you spent that you worked from home, there was a flat deduction. 80 cents an hour, easy. How many hours did I work from home? Multiply it by that, Bob's your uncle. Now, the tax office was checking it because one person put in that they were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and was claiming their 80 cents an hour. And the ATO pointed out, well, you're not working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, there is a difference between oh, I am employed 37.5, so I'll claim 37.5 because I work 100% at home. Well, that's fine. Do you work 37.5? Some people don't work the 37.5. They might only work 30. Others might work 50. As long as you've recorded and you're happy to sign off 
how did you come up with that? The tax office is happy with that. But that ended. So now we're in where, yes, you've still got to have the records, but you also have to have the records of the expenses. So are you using your mobile phone? Are you using your home internet? Did you buy a desk? Did you buy a chair? Did you buy a monitor? Have you had to update your router or your Wi-Fi? All of those things, if you need them to do your work, they are tax deductible. But the tax office has the right to go, well, just tell us how often do you use it for work and show us the receipt that it actually is in existence. So, yeah, look, it is. If you think you've used it for work, that's fine. You can claim it. But think about what was the percentage that was for work and just make sure you can prove how did you come up with that percentage. Now, it's a logbook. You don't have to keep the logbook for the whole year. It is still sampling. Keep your records for four, six, eight weeks and then go, well, that's my percentage in that eight weeks. I can now apply that for the whole year. And if your job doesn't change, well, you can do that all the next year. It's not like you have to do this all the time. It's like motor vehicle logbooks. Number of people that say, yeah, yeah, I use my car for work and this is the percentage and they've never done a logbook in their life. Well, that's fine. But if you do one and you don't change job, well, you don't have to do another one for five years. So yes, it is painful. And yes, you have to do it, but you don't have to do it all the time. Mm, that's good advice. And actually, I found that I can do some of that on my phone too, which was very interesting too. Through my- oh, yeah, track calls. Yeah, the apps that they have developed and people have put to make this sort of thing simpler is amazing. Like compared to like even like 15 years ago when we started doing your tax, where really you had no idea, you just had to do it all on Excel. Well, those days are gone. Well, there's no excuse for not being organized then. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> And so what about superannuation? Now, I know that you're not a financial planner, but you would understand some oh, well, of the look, super. The thing with super that's easy for me as an accountant to explain is that the tax rate on super contributions is 15%. And when we're talking about Australia's progressive tax scale, well, if your income's over $45,000, well, you're paying more than 15%. So if you put money into super, you're getting a tax deduction and you're actually not spending it. You're just putting it away to spend later. Yes, there's 15% tax on that money you've put into super, but depending on your income, that could be half or even a third of the tax that you'd be paying otherwise. So there is an advantage to doing that. And once it's in super, well, then it's only going to pay 15% tax on its earnings. And anybody who's done compound interest calculations realizes that if you save 15% this year times the next year times the next year times the next year, over a period of years, that adds up. Now, you said, okay, well, what's the most people can put in? Well, at the moment, the cap that anyone can claim as a tax deduction is 27500 but that includes what your employer puts in. So if you've got an employer who's putting in their 10 and a half and some employers put in more, well, that comes off the 27 and a half. So you can top up and put in more and get a tax deduction. And that's where my bit comes in is it's that, yep, look, people who have an unusual event, oh, I've sold some shares, I've sold some Bitcoin or whatever, and my income in this year is unusually high. Well, then when they say, oh, what can I do to manage it? Well, the easiest thing is, well, put, go up to your super contribution. Because that way you're not actually spending it, you're saving it, and you're reducing tax. Now, there is circumstances where you can put in more than 27500 based on how much you got into super, what you're doing, da-da-da-da-da. 
but you'd have to look into that yourself. But as a means for managing your tax and the advantages of super, look, it is it is good. It's tax effective. Tax effective. And over the longer term, it's great. There's still a lot of distrust, I find, with people with super. But now that I think people are starting to see people actually retire and use the super and do really well. Yeah. And it is, look, there has been a big shakeup in the financial planning industry over the last 10 years where people were being put into superannuation funds that they shouldn't have been and the fees were excessive, etc. That has been clamped down a lot. And a lot of the really big industry super funds perform really well every year. They own so much, like trillions of dollars of assets that their rate of return is almost just whatever the stock market is. They own buildings, they own airports, they own ports. So that's an investment that you could never make yourself. So it's like, look, they're sound. Like as far as sound investments goes, there's not much else. And for me as an accountant where we're like managing tax and business profit, et cetera, there it's definitely got its place. So I actually have another question regarding those of us who are in employment and have some of the salary sacrifice schemes. Now, in my previous work when I was employed full time, they were fairly slick presentations. They had lovely brochures. They promised the sun in terms of everything that you could buy salary sacrificed and it wouldn't cost you very much at all. So what's your view on the tax effectiveness on salary sacrificing uh, Look, if you packages? Look, if you work for a charity or a hospital and your employer is FBT exempt, well, then you salary sacrifice the max because whatever your salary sacrifice is essentially coming out to you tax-free. Now, that's got a cap. There's only so much you can do, but most of us are not in that circumstance. And so when you salary sacrifice, depending on what you're doing, you are swapping your income tax for your employer's fringe benefit tax. Now, your employer, out of the goodness of their heart, isn't going to just pay that tax. You pay that tax by reducing your salary. Now, if you were to get... Now, the number one thing people usually salary sacrifice is a car. If you're salary sacrificing laptops, phones, etc., usually the assumption is it's going to be used for work, so you're pulling it out tax-free. That's fine. That's perfect. There is a quirk in the Australian tax system where it says if you salary sacrifice for a laptop, essentially when you salary sacrifice, you've got 100% tax deduction for it. You can then subsequently also depreciate that. So it looks like you've claimed it twice. Well, that's just lucky you. But for most people, we're looking at are they going to salary sacrifice a vehicle? Now, if you'd said, I am buying this car and I'm either going to salary sacrifice it or I'm going to buy it externally. Well, in those circumstances, buying the car through salary sacrifice can be worthwhile. It just has to be your income has to be at a level where the fringe benefits tax is going to be less than the tax you'd pay on your salary. And because of the way that the tax rates are changing, that may not be the case. As a general rule, we were thinking that for it to be worthwhile, after taking out the salary sacrifice vehicle, your income had to be over 120000 Well, that means from 1 July next year, after taking out the deductions for your salary sacrifice vehicle, your income most probably has to be over 200000 Now, that's going to knock out most people that were salary sacrificing a vehicle. Now, there can be outliers. We've had people who were males who are under 25 who were salary sacrificing a sports car. 
Well, if they bought that sports car in their own name, the insurance was seven and a half grand a year. But if they salary package it, it's 1500 bucks. Wow. Because it's all as group policies under the salary sacrifice and that. So for them, okay, it's a quirk in the system. They're not a normal person. There are definite advantages to it. But where you would normally get your slick presentation, as you say, it's making sure that the figures you get are at your marginal tax rate because most of them just default to the top tax bracket because that's who they think most people who are getting the car. And if you were to salary sacrifice now, it'll be doing the calculations on the tax rates now because that's all they can deal with. But if you take into account that from next year, that may not be the tax rates, well, then your calculations are going to be incorrect. Now, if you've been salary packaging for two years, there's not much you can't pull out now. But if you're looking to package a car now, look, you might need to look at it. Now, there are, as I said, there's quirks. There has been new legislation brought in that there may not be FBT on electric vehicles. So if you buy an electric vehicle under $84,000, there's no FBT. Well, that's great. If you wanted an electric vehicle and it comes in, well, when you do your salary packaging, those numbers will work. But once again, we're looking at certain circumstances that it is viable while it's not a general rule. So no, you can't go salary sacrifice is going to be great for me because in certain circumstances it is, but it's just not for everyone. That's the key thing. So do your figures. Once again, I know it's not particularly exciting, but yeah, you've got to do the maths. Do your maths and do it yourself. Don't just rely on what they give you. Yeah, or and or get advice. Get someone to cross-check the numbers. Just check them out and see what it is. Because the overall tax savings that they show on the calculators are correct. But that's comparing buying that car in salary sacrifice versus buying that car out of salary sacrifice. And most of the time, when I've explained to people that, they wouldn't be buying that car unless it was salary sacrifice. They would go a cheaper car, different car, or most probably no car at all. When you say, well, yeah, it's great, you are saving tax, but you'd still be $12,000 a year better off if you didn't salary sacrifice the vehicle. Or took a bus or yeah. cycle. <laughs> yeah, did something different. <laughs> exactly. So I have one final question for you, which is, do you have a frugalista tip to share? I will repeat myself and say either get the ATO app or create a tax folder in your email box and just keep your records. Know what you're spending that's tax related and save it so that you've got the information there at the end of the year. Don't go back through your records at the end of the year and try and backtrack and recreate it. If you just get into the habit, if you spend something that could be work, save it or put it in the app and at the end of the year you'll have the information. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm just so honoured that you've shared your wisdom <laughs> with my listeners today. Well, hopefully I can be of some help. <laughs> you most certainly have. So thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode and others like it, please like and subscribe to the podcast, share with friends and also join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. Thank you very much. What if we You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You could talk, I would listen, I would understand your mind. Oh, I love to be with you, walking toward the sea. Times when I'm lonely, you could be the one to comfort me every.
Oh